Hello and welcome to another episode of the Level Edit Podcast. On this episode, we are discussing all things early access. Today, I am joined by Glyn and Nida. Would you like to introduce yourselves, Glyn? Hello, I'm Glyn. Um, I do visualization of automotive and architectural stuff for my work. And in my free time, I make a bunch of kind of smaller game jam games and tech demo stuff. Hey, I'm Nida. I do all things games, UX, player psychology, and a little bit of business. Uh, and I am Dan uh, of Maybe Later Games, and I'm currently working on a narrative adventure called Anachronist. Okay, so as I said, this week we are going to be discussing all things early access. So, first of all, what types of early access have we seen, and what are our favorite success stories and failures as far as early access goes? Okay, so I, I've kind of broken down how I'm thinking about it into two types. Um, one is how available the access is, and one is kind of the um, what developers are intended intending to get out of the early access model. So in terms of availability, you have quite a large range, ranging from closed beta, where you send out specific keys to specific, maybe randomly generated people. I've had to make up some words for this, but one of the ones I thought of was uh, a local beta, which is you send out copies to your friends and family and you kind of get direct feedback. Um, maybe you could extend that to just you take it to events and show it off there. The other type I thought of was kind of like a niche beta, where you're not on any of the major platforms, but you might have a game that's available through your personal site, um, games like RimWorld or Graveyard Keeper and a bunch of others, or e even games that have been pushed onto itch.io, maybe, before going onto any major platform. Um, and the other types, obviously, are open beta, which is perhaps the more common, where it's just dumped onto Steam. Um, there's even the whole Steam category for games of those natures. Um, the only other type that I thought might fit into that is kind of like episodic games, but obviously that might range. If you've got a Telltale game, you might have to pay separately, so it's not really early access. But maybe there's an early access model there where you'd push out content in like episodes rather than so you'd release finished things but piece by piece instead of the whole thing at once. And um, in terms of the type of game, um, I think that generally you see a range from people just wanting to test game balance um, to early access as like a marketing tool. Um, I think bug fixing is generally like not too much of priority of early access. I think it's just one of the things that comes up during early access. And I think indies tend to rely on early access more for funding and kind of new features ideas. AAA tends to be like, we've already decided on everything that's gonna be in this game. We might just be testing game balance and uh, maybe like monetization ideas kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it feels like there's, in some respects, some crossover with like pre-order mentality in terms mm. of early access it's kind of like paying for the content before it's all there or it's all ready um and obviously pre-ordering has its own <laughs> <laughs> reputation and issues especially because you were talking about episodic games it might be that you know you could be offered to have all of them like, here's all six episodes and you can have them all together but they're not all ready yet and there's like mm, is it right to pay for it or should you just wait I think it was interesting what you were saying about like all the different types of beta with the local beta, niche beta, open beta. I wanted to ask which um, 
what your successes uh, and what your favorite successes and failures were, as it were. So, like, examples of games that have been in early access. Can you think of any? So it's interesting, whilst we were preparing for this podcast, we were actually having a discussion about games we enjoy, and we realized quite a few of them are actually early access. Um, which I didn't realize because I guess my interpretation of early access, or at least perception of early access, isn't the most positive just based on reading news and articles and things like that. Um, but a game I really enjoyed is Astroneer, I think is a really nice one. So it's a game I've played with Glenn, even though you can play it with up to four players. Um, and it, so it can be co-op and stuff, but essentially you're, it's like another type of survival game where you kind of explore things. You're in space on some planet, I think, um, in the future, and you're kind of mining for resources and trying to build stuff so you can survive. Um, and you can kind of shape the environment to how you want to play. Um, that's a game I really enjoyed um, in terms of seeing its updates and playing it as it is updated. Um, and I think things like my initial experience encourages me to continue playing if there's a good update as well. Um, and I don't feel too bad like if I were to spend money on it. Yeah. And that's true. Sometimes, you know, with early access, you'll get something cheaper. So sometimes it's good to just slide in before before it hits its full price because it's not in early access anymore. I mean, if I see a game that I know I'm going to enjoy or feel very strongly that I will enjoy and it's in early access, I wouldn't mind buying it, even if it's not something that I would, you know, actually play until it was fully released. It is, in some ways, just the same way of getting the game cheaper, um, same as sort of like pre-ordering would be. But you could play it immediately if you chose to. For me, like, you're talking about how you're paying essentially, like, a cheaper price for a game that's still in development. And for me, that was what I originally expected early access games to be like, just because the first experience I had with this kind of uh, pricing model was with Minecraft. Because at the beginning, um, the original developer of Minecraft uh, stated that he was intending to price the game um, according to what he thought the game was worth. So as more stuff was added, the price would increase, which it kind of has um, changed a little when, obviously, he incorporated and then Microsoft took over. But, you know, I think generally, like, Minecraft did increase from... not sure if it was ever £5, but I think around £10 to £20. I'm not sure what it is now. It's probably about £30, £40 maybe. Yeah, um, I think when I got it, it was around 24 something like that, so you're probably okay. right. So yeah, I think that's what I expected early access pricing to be, but then it kind of turned into people being like, well, you pay full price and <laughs> get a half-complete product um, because we need the money, please pay us to finish this game. So I don't know what happened in that in-between stage. Um, I know I do know that a lot of games do have a pricing decrease, but I would not consider that pricing decrease to be in line with paying for what the game is worth at the current time. I consider it more to be a early access discount rather than necessarily you get what you pay for. It's Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, you can't suddenly turn around and be like, right, we finished it, so is there's <laughs> the extra fiver now because it's done. So yeah. I can kind of see that they don't want to say, you know, a quarter of the game is done, so we'll sell it for a quarter of the price, because at the end of the day, you will be getting the full product when it's ready, assuming it does get completed. Yeah, theoretically. So, I do understand, I do understand that they can't just sort of 
you know, really, really cut the profits and make it like a fifth of the price. But I would expect like a fiver, £7.50 off, something like that, depending on what the original price was going to be, you know. Yeah, and it depends, um, I guess, if like the core game loop is there or if, you know, like if, if most of your game loop is there, you're just polishing. It's a different yeah. story to if you've just got like the start part of a narrative game or. Definitely. Yeah, I think you need to have at least a core game loop or gameplay, you know, set in stone before you even go to early access. Um, and I think that's kind of why the whole survival type of game is really cool, or like sandbox games, because, you know, you kind of just give people a deserted island a few tools and you're like, game's ready. Mm-hmm. And then you can iterate on that as it goes through early access till full-on publishing. Yeah, it has like a very bare-bones MVP. <laughs> yeah, I think it's not a good thing really because it's like, look, you can eat, you're done. There's your game. Get started, and it's like, wow, I could plant a berry and then eat it. Gameplay. I do, I do have some issues with that. I don't think it is quite that simple. Although I, I, I agree with the idea of what you're saying. It's more that when you're presenting something, especially a game like that, you want to be very clear on like what model the player is forming of what your game's meant to be about. And I think if you have a loop that's that simple, I mean, maybe obviously, like, if it's a long development, there's your core gameplay loop is set in stone, but if it's just that simple, then there's not really much meat on that bone kind of thing. So I think, especially then, because it's so broad as well, like, if when you start to change stuff, people might be very confused by the direction it's taking. Because there wasn't any direction to start with, so they've just made up their own mind about what a survival game is meant to be like. Absolutely. This is a point that I was <clears throat> hoping to bring up later on, but I played games that I enjoyed originally, and then as they've been updated, I actually don't get that same enjoyment out of them anymore because you know some of the core mechanics have changed. It could even be that a character that you like to play has been nerfed or buffed or edited or maybe just completely removed or reworked, and then you're left with this like, sort of hollow game because it doesn't have the same experiences that were like your favorite part about the game, you know? Mm. I mean, it's <clears throat> not that it's early access, but with League of Legends, when I started playing League of Legends to what it is now, it's just very, very different, um, which I wouldn't say is, you know, good or bad. Like They've done a good job sort of balancing the meta, the meta trying to make sure that lots of characters are viable. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to click with everybody. You change things, there are going to be players that are turned off by it, and there are going to be players that do enjoy the new direction. Hopefully there are more new players that enjoy it <laughs> than people who are leaving. But when you build up yourself, you know, when you build a market up for yourself and then you sort of do a U-turn and change direction, you kind of have to re-market and rebrand everything. And, you know, if you're turning away like 50% of your player base, just because you'll probably get in you know, twice as many people when you make that change doesn't mean that they know the change has happened. They d- doesn't mean that they're going to actually play your game, even though they would potentially enjoy it. So it is a big task. And I think that's something that can happen whilst you're sort of navigating early access because content does get added and uh, people do get upset. The example that I could think of is um, Darkest Dungeon. I wasn't actually part of the early access part of Darkest Dungeon. By the time I'd seen it, it was on its full release. Um, but I'm sure during development they added uh, the corpses mechanic, which means that um, 
Uh, basically, when monsters die, they create corpses instead of just disappearing, which means that they can block other moves. It makes it harder to uh, attack the back monsters, for example. Um, so there were people that despised that change, and like they took to steam in droves and there was just tons of negative reviews that were being that were appearing because they were like this game has been ruined by the devs um so if you do make big changes i mean that wasn't even a big change sort of in direction that was just like one extra mechanic and uh people despised it <laughs> so when you are making updates you have to sort of be aware of the backlash that can occur yeah, I mean, I think this is two separate things, right? One is communicating your plans ahead of time and trying to communicate in such a way that they can't be... People can't form their own idea of what you're saying. Everyone reaches the same conclusions, which is a very hard thing to do with language. Um, and secondly, like, you've got different ranges of people playing. You might have your veterans who are closer to the developers. You know, they've blasted through all the difficulties. They know everything about the game. So for them, like, all the early stages of the game might seem, like, ridiculously easy, but to a new player, they might be exactly the right type of um, difficulty. It's kind of like the Goldilocks thing where, you know, she goes in and one is porridge is too hot, one's too cold, and one's just right, and everyone's going to have their different... Everyone might like a different porridge, even though it's the same kind of product. Um, so you have to be careful about listening too much to feedback in regards to how long people have spent in the game yeah i would definitely i think that's just good advice in general you know you can take feedback but take it with a pinch of salt because at the end of the day you're the designer it's your vision it's your idea you know how the whole thing is going to fit together in the end and just because someone can't see that or someone's very upset about it doesn't mean that that's right for the product just because they didn't enjoy it you know there's you sort of have to pay attention to the numbers if lots and lots of people are coming to you and saying this is horrific this is horrific <laughs> then maybe you should think about how you know is it actually good i know with darkest dungeon they actually they've put in a ton of modifiers for difficulty and you can optionally turn off corpses now so for all those people that despise having corpses they don't have to have it anymore <laughs> so there are there are i actually kind of like the way that they implemented that. There's a lot of things that you can like toggle on and off for Darkest Dungeon. Um, and it makes me wonder if, you know, with early access, where the game feels more malleable and people feel a bit more inclined to give feedback because they know that it's a product that's actually developing as opposed to, you know, a AAA release that's set in stone. No one's going to change that now. <laughs> Here it is. It's like Excalibur. Pull the sword out. You can't. So... Um, yeah, I think with early access, people are more inclined to give feedback, but because they feel like they can actually not change the direction of the game, but that their voice will be heard more. I feel like hmm. kind of more of a like community mentality, as it were. Yeah, I think being able to respond to feedback in a way that makes people feel like they've been heard, but not necessarily that things are changing to accommodate them. I think is fine. Perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it should be your decision at the end of the day. Um, but again, you do have voices there. Yeah. I think someone was mentioning that 
community, especially with early access, is kind of like a canary test. Like they tell you where there might be issues, but not necessarily like how to fix it. Um, anyway, if going back to some other successes, um, I wanted to mention a, a few kind of examples. Um, one that I've been playing recently that I really enjoy is called Deep Rock Galactic. It's a game about being dwarves and going down to an alien planet to mine a bunch of minerals and stuff. But I generally enjoy the early access model for it because they're very clear on their roadmap, what updates are coming next. Um, when they're behind on updates, they don't make excuses or not communicate. They just say, hey, this thing's not going to be in the next build. And here's an updated feature list of all the things. Like maybe we've added one thing to this current build we're working on. Maybe we've removed a couple of things as well. Um, another one is Secret Sigrindia, which instead of doing kind of like gameplay features, they tend to do, hey, we've made this area and the whole area and segment of the story is going to be in the next build of the game. And you can even jump on like a experimental branch on Steam and actually play that earlier than you can play it on early access, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Um, other notable models, I think, are Subnautica, which is they did the core game loop, they did the core areas, and then they added all the story on afterwards. Um, another one would be Minecraft, especially in the early ranges of it. I think that kind of fizzled out eventually. Um, some of the failures I thought of, which might be a little more interesting. There's been several examples of ones where they've just stopped working on the game or ran out of money. Um, I knew Minecraft... I kind of see the failure as being like the impact it had on the development team and the people involved. What happened exactly? Um, I know Marcus Person, the original creator, just did not want to deal with the popularity of it. And so basically ended up just selling the company off. And I think a lot of the team were not too informed of that decision to some degree um but it seems to have worked out for the game i just feel like i think the other example i can give that might relate to that is there was a kickstarter for system shock a, a remake of the original and it was intended to be a faithful remake so all of the levels were remade um block by block essentially and all of the original graphics were kept it got kickstarted, it did amazing on that. And then the team was kind of almost overwhelmed by the expectations set by the Kickstarter because they got overfunded. So they decided to try and revamp the graphics. They tried to, to revamp the like uh, whole level design of the original. And the project got so sidetracked on trying to be this big, amazing, better thing that they forgot that what people asked for was just an exact remake with the exact graphics just looking like a modern version of the original and i think some companies struggle with early access especially if they get a bunch more funding because suddenly they have a lot more responsibility and pressure um so i think some games have failed in that regard just because they either start listening to their community way too much or they start trying to go super big i mean you could probably ca categorize a star citizen in this um category even despite what you might think of star citizen i think it's kind of undeniable at this point that they've had 
a certain range of failures um, to do with their, what they're putting out there and their project management. Um, a couple more examples I thought of just quickly. Um, one was Graveyard Keeper, which came out on early access with kind of the story finished and the main game loop finished. And I think it was a success in terms of the game, but I think that because you could just finish the story, a lot of people just did that and they'll probably never play again. And because they wanted to kind of delay people from finishing the game, they made the main game loop super grindy. So it ended up being like you grind and then you finish the game and then you never want to play again, as opposed to something like Subnautica, where the story is kind of pitched out in segments or um, something like... Um, Deep Rock Galactic, where you have a constant reason to go back because there's more stuff being added and you kind of continue your journey. Um, recently as well, there's been uh, Fallout 76, which uh, it's not even out yet, but uh, there's been like an early beta and the communication between Bethesda's marketing team uh, and the general public, I think, has been indicative of perhaps why you should be very careful with language you use and expectations about when you're creating like this beta environment for your game. I think it's interesting what you were saying about um, people, the dev teams listening too much. I find that when you have a dev team that does listen to the community too much, you tend to get these really drastic changes in one direction. And then everybody who didn't agree with that decision takes to <laughs> Reddit or the Steam page or whatever, and then it just like, okay, sorry, we'll we'll undo it and we'll go in the other direction. And then you just like have these huge zigzags and rubber bands. And um, yeah, the game, if you as the developers do not know where you want that to be, where you want to draw the line, then you end up with like a wishy-washy product that never really draws that line and it doesn't actually appeal to anybody because... Um, because it's just making such drastic changes all the time. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree that that could be a problem. <laughs> um, as for other games, uh, one that I was going to mention were Slay the Spire, which I have played way, way too much of, that is still in early access at the moment, but is getting close to release, I believe. Same with Secrets of Grindia, that has a, a beta branch, so you can also, you know, you can go, not only is it early access, but you can choose to sort of see the content uh, before anybody else, even though it might not look good or it might be prone to bugs, for example. Uh, but the people who are on that bench, they have to opt into it, so it's not anything that anyone who's playing on there would be aware, unaware of. Um, there's also Oxygen Not Included, which um, I haven't played personally, but my I see my brother playing a lot of it. Um, and with games like that, like you said, the game loop is there, but all you're doing is adding a new mechanic and a new mechanic and a new mechanic and then you're maybe adding some new structures uh it's kind of like a resource management game that one so it might be that you add some new materials some new structures some new resources some new like need bars for your people um and those sort of games are great i believe for early access because it is so easy to just sort of plug in another um mechanic as it were kind of kind of in the same um vein as minecraft got this huge open world and you could just make a new block and make a new space for it um or make a new uh what do they call them and it go completely new biome so yeah i do think some games lend themselves more to early access than others what you're saying about story games you know if you if you finish the story then 
a lot of the time that's your motivation gone you're playing that for the story and the story's done now so you you don't really need to play it again and if you say like the mechanics themselves were drawn out <laughs> just mm. to keep like player attention it kind of goes back to what chris was saying um from the horror episode where you know this game you could have made it a fifth of however long you actually made it and it would have been a really good game but yeah alas <laughs> Um, and then you already mentioned they are billions. Those are the ones that I was going to pick up on. So I know we've already kind of touched on this, but I wanted to ask, is there anything else you want to say on early access, uh, changing the relationship between the developer and the consumer? One point I wanted to bring up was that, um, <laughs> as I was saying, the game is more malleable when it's in early access. And I feel like a lot of the general public feel like they have a very, very good grasp of game design from having grown up with games and playing them all the time. Um, I feel like there's a misconception that people know more about game design than they actually do. I'm not sure if I'm alone in thinking this. <laughs> um, but I feel like when people suggest, they make suggestions or they make improvements as they see them. Um, and they are very strongly opinionated about the changes that they are suggesting without necessarily considering all of the changes that that would actually bring. I know with balance patches, for example, and I, I see this on like the huge games, especially like MOBAs and like, you know, Hearthstone, etc. There are people that <laughs> are basically constantly complaining about the power level of certain cards or classes or characters, etc. Um, and, I mean, to a certain extent, I feel like you just have to trust the devs with their vision. Like I was saying before, they have their vision for this game. They know what they want this game to feel like. And whilst you can provide feedback, they are probably not going to necessarily listen to it. Um, and I feel like, like I said, with Early Access being more of a malleable product, people offer their feedback and they're like, "Where, where is it? why have you not put this in the game? Why aren't you listening to me? The devs are evil. I'm not playing this trash ever again. <laughs> Dislike rating, <laughs> a terrible review. And then uh, they don't go back to that game. <laughs> and I feel like that's more of a problem with early access than, you know, than elsewhere. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, when a developer says something or there's some controversy involved with them and then you'll just get people bombing the review section uh, and that can be it's detrimental to a game in general but also like when you are in early access uh, I think it can be worse maybe just because you are working on what's like a ongoing project so people might see it as of a lesser quality or less worthy or you know good reviews and stuff. I think it is a struggle though, like trying to balance your player expectations with your own vision that you have for the game. I think a lot of, because we are moving to this whole games as a service thing, you know, you it implies that we're doing this for players, which you kind of are, but I think it does lead to this kind of environment where players assume, you know, that this is for me, therefore I know what's best, or I don't know, I don't, maybe that's a bit too much of a blunt or harsh observation, but it's like, 
like you were saying, Dan, where it's like, you know, players will then be upset if certain features aren't what they want or the game's not going in the direction they want. Um, and then trying to balance that with the whole marketing of, well, this is what my, actually, my game actually is versus what people want. Um, I think that can be a struggle, though, as a developer. Trying to do those two things. Yeah, I think people are very good at filling in the blanks with their own expectations. So we've been talking a lot about vision and how, especially for early access games, the the vision of what the game is trying to be and what it is now is very important. And I think especially with early access, one, it's very good as a developer to know where you are now and where your game is going um, before you go into early access. Because if you're confused about where the game is going, your players are especially going to be confused about where it's going in early access. And the second one is when you go into early access, you are very much responsible for this model in the player's head of what they see the game as now and what it's going to be. So there's an extra responsibility for communicating that, communicating that effectively, communicating changes in that expectation. Um, so there's definitely a great need for transparency and there's a great need for a solid focus on what is the vision that we as developers want our game to be. And maybe as players contribute feedback, you start to realize, oh, you know, we're going to do this area, but we're going to add pets to it or something. Or, you know, this area that we were going to add, we're just going to change it slightly. But I think it's good to have that initial grounding of what we want it to be before you even start. Because then people know, oh, here's what this game is going to be in 10 months. You know, with there are billions, it's like straight from the bat, they were like, at the moment, we've got this skirmish mode, essentially, where you can try and survive like 100 days. Um, but we are focused and committed to making a campaign for this game. So it's not, there's no player expectation of, oh, what if they added like um, verses or whatever, because the players all know that they're going to work on the campaign and that's what they're going to do. But they've also added a bunch of stuff to the wave survival mode because of how players have responded to that. Yeah, I think it's it's going through like an iterative protest, no, process. Um you know, where you get some feedback. Because I was reading, like, Steam's definitions of, definition on early access, and it was early access is when there's community involvement uh, in the development of a game, and I think as a dev, it's up to you to choose how much that is, really. Um, I think with that comes, like, a level of transparency, right, or honesty of, like, this is what we can give you, or at least this is what we're offering, and this is kind of what we're going for. And then for you as a player to decide, yeah, this sounds like my thing, I'll spend my money on it. And I understand fully that this is an early access, so it's not complete. And this game could be very different to what it is now in the future. Yeah, I think quite often you're hoping it's going to be different because it doesn't play <laughs> properly at the time. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I want to go back to what you touched on right at the beginning about um, testing and bug reports, Glenn. So you were saying that, you know, obviously it's community involvement. And in a sense, you kind of get a bunch of free beta testers who are just trying out your game for you and making bug reports. I'm not going to say it's as effective as a QA team would be, <clears throat> but just the sheer number of people 
that you can have playing your game. And, you know, the way Nid is talking about it being community involvement, that's true. Um, and a lot of the time, the people who are making the feedback, they want to actually see the game get better. They don't mm. want that bug there because it makes their experience worse. So if they can contribute something to the game to make it play better, run more smoothly, etc., then it's not even any hair off their back, really. Is that the expression? <laughs> um, it's no real detriment to them because it's actually, you know, it's doing some benefit for them as much as it is for the game itself. So, yeah, I think it can have some benefits. Yeah, I think it is probably one of the hardest things to get right about early access is the feedback. My general experience of it is, A, you need to be very clear on communicating the kind of call to action for feedback where people can go if they want to talk about your game. And I think the second part is that if people are giving feedback, they don't necessarily always expect a developer response. They just want somewhere to go where they can feel like they can voice their opinion in public, so to speak. Um, I think for bug fixing, it's more important to know that the developer has seen your bug fix. I know Deep Rock Galactic has essentially like a Trello board for it, and they have a detailed description of like, hey, you post your bug into this slot, and we'll then move it to one of these columns that are like, here's a gameplay bug, here's the thing, and we'll mark the status and how serious it is. So sometimes you'll like report something and they'll move it to like gameplay, but it's not very serious. So like, oh, you're like, okay, they probably won't fix it in a while. Sometimes they're like, this is game breaking, so we'll move it to like a high priority thing. And at least feels like, I mean, A, it's kind of nice because it requires some effort on your part to post the thing because you need to include like screenshots, you need to write description, um, how to reproduce and stuff. So there's like a kind of like barrier to entry where you need to actually care enough about the bug to report it properly. But B, it's also like when you see it in there, you know that they've actually seen it and you know the amount that they're working on it, if they're working on it immediately or if they're leaving it to like a few updates later. But obviously that kind of um, effort or setup requires like a lot more work. So it's something to kind of bear in mind when with these models, it's like all these extra responsibilities come with like an associated time cost. Yeah, it is interesting. I know for Slay the Spire, they have a Discord, and you actually do bug reports through a channel that they've created in the Discord. <clears throat> they have a specific syntax for how you report a bug, and then they have a um, they have a bot that takes it, basically takes it, and I don't know, maybe it stores it on some dashboard for somebody somewhere. Um, but yeah, the easier it is for the players to submit stuff the more you'll get, but as you say, it might not be as high quality if you're, you know, if you're forced to include a screenshot um, or add, you know, maybe 200 word description, well, 200 character description, some people are going to be like, uh, no. <laughs> I don't know, I don't actually know what's causing it, I can't bother to contribute that, whatever, so the stuff that you're getting will be higher quality, I guess it depends how much time you have to read through crap, as it were, Yeah. Um, some bug reports are not going to be very helpful. Uh, yeah, okay. So what steps should developers take to properly communicate and manage player expectations? I know, Glenn, you already talked about you should have a roadmap, 
kind of, of, you know, what is your game going to look like at its destination? When this is finished, what sort of vision do you have for it? What product are you actually building towards as opposed to just presenting what you have at the moment? Are there more steps? Yeah, I think you don't need to be so verbose as saying, like, we're going to have exactly 97 pets or we're going to have, you know, five new weapons or something. I think that, one, it's better to be conservative, but two, it's better to just describe a general notion. Because whatever you do, people are always going to think of certain things in their head that will be in the game. Like, even, like, if you say pets, there's, like, a million types of pets. There might be, like, real-life pets, or it could be, like, alien pets. There could be fantasy pets. Um, and even, like, the interactions... You know, yeah, there's a Sonic game where you have like mini games involving your pets and you like make them fight and stuff. And sometimes it's just, you know, you pet it, you feed it like a Tamagotchi or whatever. Yeah, I, th- I think it's more important to say like, here's what we're focusing on right now. So maybe let's say, hey, this is the thing you can play right now, but we're now focusing on the campaign. And maybe you end up do spending some development time on the thing you just gave them to bide their time. But at least they know what you know, what are they going to come back for, essentially? Um, the same with, like, Secret of Grindia. It's like, oh, if you know this area is being worked on, you're going to come back for that thing, you know? If, with Deep Rock Galactic, you might see the... Um, you might actually see the updates and say, like, oh, you know, this month they're just doing cosmetic stuff, but next month they're doing um, stuff to do with, like, character progression, so I'll actually be able to log back in and upgrade my character, and that might be cool, so maybe I'll keep checking in, and then, like, November I'll come back and play some more because the stuff I actually want to be in the game will be in there by then kind of thing Um, I think the main thing especially from the start is like say if you're making a survival game and like like Ark Survival Evolved has dinosaurs like if you've just been like hey we're making a survival game and then next month you shove out like an update with 20 dinosaurs people are going to be like I thought this was a hardcore PvP rest style game but apparently there's dinosaurs and PvE content now yeah so having a clear vision that isn't necessarily defined down to the bone, because obviously your own vision is going to change over time, but also doesn't leave too much wiggle room for people just making stuff up in their mind about the purpose of the game, especially regarding like how much it's PvP, how much it's PvE, um, what people are expected to do in the core game loop. Um, like if you're making a game about dinosaurs and you hadn't even included in the main game loop vision the dinosaurs like what are people expecting to do with them kind of thing mm, yeah absolutely yeah I think building on that point it's kind of because first impressions are kind of long lasting especially when you see the steam page well that's an example of a game when you give when you are seeing that page with the description of what the game actually is um, so it's kind of being like, hey, this is as far as we can go. Or this is what we're going to do. Join us if you want or not. But I think that community building aspect is so essential, especially early on. Like, you know, there's that quote or thing that people say where it's like, you know, if you didn't even build a community around a game or market it, before it came out, could you even make a game? Because who's going to play it if they didn't see it? Um, also... I think also understanding that early access is very different to Kickstarter as well. Um, because uh, I think there are sometimes similarities made between the two, but the 
I guess like the strategy, at least the business strategy that you've designed for your game is completely different. Like both have elements of community, but the way you go about building it and what you show your players varies as you go along. Um, because I was reading a post-mortem by the people who were making Boyfriend Dungeon, um, a game on Kickstarter. Um, and they were talking about like how the engagement changed over time and what they could have done differently. And I think some of the feedback that they got or the general things they found out post-evaluation would be points that you would not apply to an early access game. Um, even though you are kind of encouraging people to play your content before it's fully ready or you're giving promises before yeah. it's ready. I'm glad you mentioned Kickstarter because I kind of feel like it's relevant to all of this discussion. I'd kind of probably, I think I would put it more towards the pre-ordering side of things than really early access because I know that some <clears throat> some projects that you back, you won't actually get anything playable or tangible until the product's actually finished. Whereas with early access, I would expect to be able to, you know, basically buy it, play it at whatever state it's at at the moment. So. I think they are kind of different. You expect a more polished product and you expect it to be done when it's done. You probably will forget about it and then a year later it's like, oh, look, that thing's here that I ordered a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it is interesting though. I think Kickstarter to a certain extent is about early access and you have to have your vision laid out. And if people are getting a product that they're not happy with because it's very different to what you promised them a year ago, you could get you know a lot of negative feedback because of that. So, again, I think, you know, setting expectations early seems to be really important there. Yeah, and I think it is a case of, like, you can change. If you set a bunch of expectations and then something changes and you have to change those expectations, it's fine to change your game, but you need to communicate it clearly to everyone that what you stated before and what is going on now is different and kind of manage expectations of what the final result is going to be. Um, and certainly, like, you know, even with um, Darkest Dungeon, like, people are going to be upset. But you have to think long-term and say, well, if we communicate this well enough, we can minimise the amount of people who are upset. And maybe down in the future it will actually be beneficial because people will get on board with the new thing. And then maybe we can add some like customization options. That... Yeah, they do seem to have been very receptive. Interestingly, when the game got moved to console, because they also released on console eventually, they, were, they added difficulty modes. Because I think one common complaint with Darkest Dungeon is it is extremely hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, with permadeath being a feature, you can, you can lose a lot of hours of gameplay progress just because your, you know, your max level character died and they're not coming back. So they did add a version of the game that was less grindy, you level up faster, it's a little bit easier, because I think it's less of a hardcore experience, which isn't to cater to everyone's needs. And I think having had early access and having had a lot of time for the feedback is something that they've been able to pick up and then you know work towards for this other release and sort of fix mistakes that they made the first time around. Yeah, I think especially for that, we've, we've kind of been talking about this but it's very important to set the expectations at the start I, I know darkest dungeon like the visual style 
everything about the game is marketed as this kind of hardcore experience. Um, and obviously maybe that changed after it saw more popularity because more people were getting into it. So the design expectation had to change from the actual people who were playing it. But I think, you know, Darkest Dungeon kind of succeeded in the fact that most people in the start, especially in the start of the early access, knew that it was going to be a gritty, hard game. Um, even with like games like FTL, they, they managed the expectation of what the game experience is going to be and who is it for very well kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I guess starting niche and then branching out as this sort of popularity. Yeah, interesting. I wanted to talk about other methods. Like, you know, if you are if you have a game in early access, what should you be doing? What steps should you be taking? Like one example that I had was um, you know, you could have regular devlogs to let people know what are you working on at the moment, what's the next thing that they can expect. Um, maybe talking about the challenges that they've faced, if that's something that players would be interested in seeing. Um, so devlogs is one thing that you could do. What else would you need to make sure that you're consistently providing for players if you are running an early access game? Um, I do kind of think it depends on if, you know, obviously there's a lot of business stuff that goes on in the background, because if you're early access as well and you've got a lot of money, that's a lot more pressure to do business stuff. Um, maybe you hire more people to increase development time, especially if you're doing feedback, maybe you have to hire someone full time to do the feedback or do things like mm. um, rewards for like community engagement and stuff like that. I think, community manager kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think you do want to plan for the minimum because especially if you haven't done it before, it's a whole new skill that takes time to learn. And sometimes like you might realize that you yourself are not actually, um, you don't have the personality or engagement to time, actually do the time, or time to do those things well. Yeah. Um, so I think minimum is make sure you set expectations at ground zero, especially if you want to grow a healthy community, because we've seen so many communities at the time that have been left to kind of fester and rock by themselves um, and have turned into complete hellholes. I think so minimum is... If you're having bug reporting, make sure people can report bugs directly because otherwise people are just going to write minimum as possible and then send it off into the ether. So either don't do bug reporting at all or do it or manage it. Um, I think for feedback, make sure people have a place to go where they can talk about their game. Even if you don't aren't able to check it very often, at least they'll have people to talk with. I think that it's very important to moderate those communities unless you want to turn it, you know, unless it wants to be another one of the uh, League of Legends forums kind of thing, or... Mm-hmm. Um, Seventh Circle of Hell. Yeah, so it's, it's basically <laughs> like setting expectations early and maintaining those and being aware of being open to communicating changes in what you said and what is now happening. And then, yeah, making sure that people have a place to go to talk that the places where people go to talk are moderated in some way and also if you are doing bug reporting make sure people get feedback on the bugs they've reported even if it's just a case of classifying the bugs into things yeah that's a really interesting point about moderation because it's it can be a huge job if you've got communities chatting 24 7 then yeah you know like i said it is basically a full-time job so it's important to make sure it doesn't fester and become toxic like you said yeah, I think also 
I think just from the beginning, seeing if early access is the right fit for you and your game. Um, you know, is it a good fit for the genre I'm going into, the pricing, what are my intended goals and things like that. And seeing if this is like a sustainable mode of like releasing your game. Like can you see good long term retention or impact over time? Um that's just good for you because then you then know how to interact with your community that you want to build. Yeah, um, I think that's a really valid point. The game that I'm working on at the moment, like I said, I'm making a narrative adventure, but with a story game, early access is not really <laughs> the best fit for it because the story needs to be done. Otherwise, you know, what are you playing? So that is like a really good point. Is your content actually a good fit for early access? Yeah, because I think you know, early access is probably here to stay around for a while. But it is not the only way to make or release a game. Um, and kind of jumping off of that, also realize that your community are a community. They are players. They are not QA testers. Um, so make sure you have a good team or other methods of playtesting available. Um, because there's only so much you can get from, you know, beta players or early access players. Um, a QA tester, you know, is more qualified or at least has a certain background or skill set that can help you navigate your direction of your game. Um, just made me laugh, you said. That's what you get from beta players. You need some alpha players. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? It's yeah, more like people whose job it is. It's good to have them on board. Absolutely. Like, yeah. you know, just giving it to the general public is not the same as having a dedicated QA team. Um, the only other thing that I would have added was and then we did slightly discuss this, but having accurate patch notes each time I think is really important. So you can come back to the experience and see, well, what has been added, what has been changed. Um, you know, sometimes you might want to research something before you go straight into it. Uh, I know with Say the Spire, they added a new creature in the final act, and I was on an Ascension 20 run, and I was like, what on earth is this creature? <laughs> so I had to figure out its uh, moveset while I was going for like one of the high scores, and yeah, I probably should have looked that creature up in advance. It was in the patch notes, but um, it's just nice to know what has changed, and um, I think it's quite a good practice for a team in general even if you're not providing something for a community it's good for you to know what have you changed this patch um yeah, yeah i think you need to have like a content strategy so because mm. i mean the problem with games well it's not a problem maybe it's a dev it could be but it's like you need to have regular content to release and with each patch you've got to be like have i got enough content or the right type of content set up as well um, and it can be pretty stressful as well, so having a long-term plan written down somewhere. And making sure you order that properly as well. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. I said, with Secrets of Grindia, they're doing it level by level, as it were. Um, so that's a quite a sustainable format, and they don't have to think too far in advance. But Yeah, and you're either, kind of the, you're either doing like the Valve model of like, well, we'll release it when it's finished, or you do the kind of um, roadmap style where you know, we'll we'll release it in like two weeks' time, and here's all the things that'll be in it. Yeah. And I think for both, you have to be. It, it can cause a lot of stress when you promise things, Absolutely. and I think it's it's fine to adjust those types of promises as long as you make it clear that you are doing so. I think the worst thing that can come out is developers promise a feature, you don't hear about it for like 
a year and then they say, oh yeah, we stopped working on it. I think it's better to just be clear and say like, this isn't working out. Like we're not going to have enough time to do this thing we promised because we're it's taking longer than we thought. So instead we're going to do this for this month and the next month we'll have had the extra time. Yeah, I do think time estimates themselves are a dangerous game. And I've made a note as well, not to promise too far ahead because time estimates in this industry <laughs> are yeah. not very accurate at the moment. Okay, yeah. excellent. Did you have something to say? Uh, yeah, I think that in general, just early access is a good indicator of just project management. Um, even if it's just knowing before you go in what the point of early access is for your company, what you're doing now, what you're doing later is, it seems like the bare minimum, but sometimes it can be very tough to even fulfill that. And especially when you've got an idea that's changing all the time, I think. Definitely. And there's a lot of skills involved. And, you know, project management isn't really probably why you went into game <laughs> development in the first place. And for these small teams that are typically the ones that are releasing early access games, uh, it can be hard to make sure that you've got all the skills, um, yeah, to work on it properly and to plan it out properly, etc. So the final question, is the current type of early access that we have a sustainable model? Or what I mean by that is, do you think the model will be changing in the future? Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of it will be changing. So I think it will keep its basic form, you know, of releasing some content and then you kind of iterate that or, um, yeah, doing something like that. But I think it will change over time in terms of understanding what level of voice do you give to the player when it comes to making these changes, um, especially at the moment, you know, because of the different discussions going on around player expectation or what players think is good or bad about a game can really skew public perception anyway. But, um, yeah, I think that over time there will be, I don't know, methods or different ways people will experiment of how, uh, figuring out how is best to do that while still releasing a pretty good game. Because I think with a service model, you will always have some player voice, I think. It's just how much you will be okay with, you know, guiding your game. Yeah, I think as well, like, early access has changed over the years. I think nowadays it's in a state where, to be taken seriously, you need some level of uh, marketing strategy and business strategy, even if you don't necessarily have a game. Um, so I think that in the future... It's going to be really interesting to see what the expectations are for early access titles, as well as, you know, if you if you have con these console platforms now with their marketplaces, will they start to adopt early access more? Um, there's a lot more storefronts nowadays than just Steam, and they might bring out their own models of early access. And it's also easier than ever to publish it on your own site but it's almost harder than ever to drive traffic to those sites. So it'd be interesting to see what methods people employ to maybe pushing their stuff out to smaller sites before they try and target bigger platforms. Would that be like a, 
early access strategy. Maybe you just do early access on smaller platforms and then you actually launch fully on bigger platforms so you develop an audience. So it'll be kind of interesting to see how the business grows as platforms change and different methods of publishing your game kind of come about. Absolutely. I mean, even in the past couple of weeks, Discord has been discussing their new gaming marketplace sort of as a direct competitor to Steam. So it'd be really interesting to see where that goes and if it does change the um, the landscape to early access as well. Yeah, I think some people have been like saying H2IO might be their alternative for Steam now as well. So I think generally there will be more platforms over time that kind of allow you to do early access. But I think Steam at the moment is just dominating for now anyway. Absolutely, yeah. Can't deny that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's been this episode of the Level Edit Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Twitter at at Level Edit Podcast. Is it Level Edit Podcast? Level Edit. You can find us on Twitter at at Level Edit. Uh, Please do let us know if you have any comments. Um, or feedback or suggestions because you know we're in early access right now (laughs) (laughs) and uh, we will see you on the next episode bye bye